Thanks, man. I'd like to say this was down to my hard work and effort, but it was all Sean and Ash, uh, basically, but appreciated nonetheless. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself. What is it that you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I have a YouTube channel. I do um, street interviews, man on the street interviews and uh, political commentary, you know, and so uh, mainly what I'm known for is my street videos. I go around pretty much all over the United States, primarily around California in, you know, Democrat run California. And uh, I go out in some videos, we talk to people and just kind of get their perspective, a little bit more reporter, you know, reporting style a little bit getting some viewpoints on various topics. We, we, we don't shy away from anything. So I do that. I also challenge people's kind of, you know, their beliefs, why they believe what they believe. And then also if they say something incorrect, I try to bring up some information that may actually change their mind because a lot of people were getting so set in our ways. And, you know, we want to encourage more civil political discourse, even though even if that's kind of in public, we tend to do it in a very friendly way and, and just a, a curious way as well. So... Yeah, it's, it's fascinating because the, the political divide has been so pronounced, especially in, in the USA. And one of the biggest problems in that regard is that people on opposite se- sides of the debate are not really having conversations. So tell me a little bit about, I mean, it falls into the category of like street epistemology, doesn't it? I mean, how do you how do you tend to approach these people? What kind of methods do you use to do your best to ensure a productive conversation rather than an outright shouting match? For sure. And, and, you know, this is always kind of a hard question to, to answer because I do, you know, I, I, I play it like pretty loose when it comes to like the style of video that I do. Some videos are way more combative and I have a stance and, and I'm going to make that stance something that's just like I believe to be objectively true and, and I want to help educate people. Other ones, they can be just more uh, a little bit more a curious approach and try to somewhat change their mind. I tend to go into the videos because I, I lean more conservative, right? And yeah. I'm, I'm open about that. I don't pretend to be like objective and very few people are objective. I don't pretend to be like a, a centrist and, and very few people are, you know, I have my opinions and, and we can come to some agreements, but um, a lot of what I do honestly is just coming at it from a very friendly approach when it comes to let's pick a topic uh we recently did reparations or systemic racism in the united states and so you want to ask people for examples of of what that would be and you tend to you know you want to let them speak because it's really it's it's about the conversations with the individual but it's really also majorly about the uh video and how many people that video will reach so if people get convinced by an argument that somebody makes in my video that's great if they can if they can maybe get convinced by something that i'm saying that's phenomenal and so we really want to lay that out for you know to be on display for people to see on video so that they can kind of i guess draw their own conclusions you know, and uh, people watching will know that I have my views on it. They'll know what I believe. But I try to give people an honest and fair chance to express their views. And so if it's something that's, um, you know, maybe they give like a bad example or something like that, we would very kindly, usually, you know, very kindly, I'm not like jabbing at people in public and stuff, try to try to say, okay, well, is that really what systemic racism would be? And then talk about what systemic racism is and see if we can work it out from there. And a lot of times we end up changing people's minds on the streets. Other times, uh, you know, the conversation ends in a big fiery ball, just completely out of control. But usually we do a pretty good job at keeping the situation under control. I'm not out there to 
you know, just piss people off. Right. Um, obviously like outraged people will be, they're funny for content, but it's not what all that we want the content to be. Well, we want it to be educational, informative, and people can go home at the end of the day after watching that video and say, okay, well, Hey, I can use this argument that James made or this point that James made because I didn't know this or something uh, at dinner with the family. Maybe the uncle keeps challenging us. Okay, that's a good point. They can use that in their own lives. So really it's just arming people with truth to use at the workplace (laughs) if you want, uh, you know, within your own life in classrooms. And, and, you know, that's really a a big part of why I make the video videos to educate people, to arm them with good facts, with good talking points. So they can kind of challenge the, insanity that's really sweeping you know the united states and probably the world yeah i I agree that we do appear to have been completely deranged on the on the topic of skin color and this this in this issue of systemic racism is a fascinating one especially in the u.s perspective and I, i i kind of suspect there's no small amount of tribalism that plays into this because people will throw around the term systemic racism almost as a buzz word now and what they're really saying is I'm against racism and on the face of it I think what it appears when someone like you challenges the concept of systemic racism is in a roundabout way that you're somehow attempting to defend racism so how do you make it clear to these people that yes obviously we accept racism is a very real and serious thing that Mm -hmm. needs addressing however systemic racism is a very specific thing that demands a very specific criteria backed up by very specific examples. How do you, how do you delineate between those things? It's such a good question. And that's what the media has, the media, like, like, you know, that's really what they've made almost impossible is if you challenge a particular narrative. Now it's like, oh my gosh, you're a bigot, you're a racist, whatever it may be. And it's like, okay, geez, like, you know, no, we're just having a conversation. I think really to answer that, you come at it from a place of like understanding how other people think. So let's say somebody's more far left or let's just say there may be a registered Democrat. There's a lot of people out there that are willing to have these conversations if you just kind of lean into it right. Of course, there's a lot of people that are off the edge and they will never listen to you. You'll never change their minds, whatever. But the, there's a lot of people that just maybe they've, they've been told to believe a certain thing. And you can approach it kind of just with little things like, hey, this is coming from a place of love or, hey, I'm just trying to understand this. And, and, and I know that sounds kind of silly to some people, but it actually does work. If you're delicate with your words when you're approaching a pretty, I would argue, pretty tough conversation that a lot of people totally don't understand, right? Systemic meaning like actually ingrained in the system, our institutions, policing, stuff like that, that's against a particular race, right? And, and, and people don't understand that. They'll say, oh, well, systemic racism is... Uh, some guy had his bags checked in front of me and they were black and, and I was white and I didn't have that. It's like, okay, well, you know, context matters. There could be various things, right? Um, they'll just blame anything on racism at that point. And, and really, if we're having that conversation about systemic racism and if it exists today, of course it exists in the past uh, to a pretty large extent, right? But today, if we're having that conversation, I just approach it very delicately to allow them to kind of open up. And also if you approach them delicately, Um, it can not only allow them to open up, but also allow them to consume the information, listen to what you're saying, because it's impossible to get people to listen to you. If you start right off the bat with their guard up, it's nearly impossible. They won't open up. Yeah, no, that's a good answer. Uh, I mean, this is an awkward aspect of the, the systemic racism debate. And, um, and normally like, I, I, 
I wouldn't I wouldn't really want to talk about skin colour. It wouldn't be something I think we need to get so invested in. I'm, I'm very much for the, the you know, the MLK uh, idealised version of a sort of colour blindness. That really appeals to me, not only because it's appealing, but it actually works as he's, as he's demonstrated so well in yeah. his work. But, I mean, it's, uncom- it's an uncomfortable fact a little bit as well that if we were going to point to real aspects of systemic racism, we could actually point to perhaps anti-Asian sentiment within Akka academia not necessarily sentiment but in terms of you know um their you know hiring policies admission policies rather in the in the uk not so long ago i think it may have been the fire engine service fire service was found guilty of rejecting an applicant solely because they were white and they were looking to fill some quotas so i mean if we are going to look at the systems of, of racism that exist around us it, it doesn't seem to be disproportionately affecting non-white people as claimed no, it's 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 quite the opposite. You know, um, I, I'm sure it's similar in the UK. We've completely overcorrected for sy- systemic racism. And what you mentioned about the Asians is uh, the Asian community is absolutely spot on when it comes to college acceptance rates. There's absolutely no doubt they get penalized when it comes to applying to these top colleges. And um, and then and then, you know, you, you have uh, people of color that actually get benefited there. Um, and it, it's it's funny going back to your point of you would love to ignore it. And I think a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of what conservatives do in America, uh, there's some instances where we've gone more on offense and it's, it's actually been a, a, a great thing, but a lot of it is just reactionary. Why am I talking about this? Why are we talking about systemic racism? Well, it's because we have to do some damage control because the media since about 2010, 2013 has been just selling the nation that racism is the greatest threat to our country. Systemic racism is alive and well. And, you know, you have to combat the lies because they've repeated these lies that people of color are being systemically oppressed in today's society. And, you know, eventually it actually does make an impact. It makes a difference. People buy into this. They get completely brainwashed. Uh, you can look no further than how much of an uproar people were trying to make of unarmed black Americans being shot by police. Now, of course, any um, any unarmed person being shot by police is is just a, an awful thing. Except for, you know, we have a country of 330 million people. That number that I just referred to tends to refer that tends to be around like 10 to 20 individuals uh, a year in a country with 330 million people of over a million police officers. And, you know, if you actually look into those numbers, too, it's like half, if not more, are fighting with police officers. So it's not just like random people. So and they grab onto this because we really do have like a shortage of supply, if I were to put it, um, a shortage of supply of like racist instances in our pretty massive country that they'll grab onto literally anything, even if it's this tiny, tiny blip, you know, 10 to 15, like I mentioned, unarmed police shootings. Like that's like within human error, right? You're going to have bad cops. You'll have mistakes. You'll have stuff like that in a country as large as ours. And, and, you know, they'll grab onto these little instances. And the fact that they do this stuff just shows how desperate they are for these examples to divide. You have, um, there's the, the Gallup poll in the United States has been tracking race relations for like decades, right? And it was actually up until about 2013, it was up on a upward, a slight upward increase, and the numbers were pretty high. They're pretty. Everything was looking pretty good, and since then 
we've uh, since then we've had uh it, it's basically just been plummeting since 2013 and you can also look at similar charts of like what the media has been doing and ever since they discovered identity politics and the power of that right because they see that oh my gosh dividing people based on race making them afraid of like going outside and being shot by a cop or, or making them afraid of uh, white people being racist in the country or whatever it may be, just turning everyone on each other. As soon as they figured that out, they never stopped. And you'll see the numbers that they use. They use like racist, racism, bigotry, whatever. You can search for those numbers. And ever since 2013, right, you know, around when they figured out about identity politics, um, those charts have, have skyrocketed. So race relations have plummeted at, um, along with the charts of showing the media milking you know, this racial divide skyrocketing. So that's not a coincidence, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to me if we look at the impact of George Floyd's murder. Now, for me, that, that's been the catalyst of so much. And it seems like, depending on the skin colour of the people involved, certain assumptions are worked backwards from. They're assumed as true, and then everyone else has to do the fact-checking afterwards. And I, you mentioned that you, you lean conservative. I lean left liberal but i'm also very facts driven when it comes to incidents like this so we had the murder of george floyd which you could spend all day saying it was completely unjustified i'm glad justice was served and those responsible are now behind bars there's no justification for that whatsoever i think everyone who, who watched that video was horrified uh however the most uncomfortable truth really for the blm narrative and everything that followed is the fact that there is no objective reason whatsoever whatsoever to claim that murder was motivated by any sort of racist intent. Yet that was the assumption made from the get-go. And that's the mm -hmm. reason why sports stars in my home country are getting down on one knee before gay a game before, because some uh, gentleman in Minnesota has been murdered. And I, I can't quite explain how this, you know, the global hysteria uh, has occurred to the point where we just accept on face value that, that was essentially a racist lynching, and we accept that without any semblance of evidence. Yeah, and, and that's, you know, I, I think right or left, if you are seeking truth, right, you will automatically reject this insane mob mentality that swept nations across the world, you know? Because like what you just said, yes, there's no evidence of racism. Would I have, would I, would I say that there's evidence of racism if there was objective, like, evidence of racism of course because i want to actually inform people i want to give them the truth i'll tell them when i give them i'll tell people when i'm giving my opinion and you'll be able to tell i'm not hiding it but we can talk facts and and that was one case where they saw that and they said you know what this is way more beneficial financially look how much money black lives matter organization brought in you know if they if they just say hey it's racism it doesn't matter our media is not which is like shocking nowadays but it's like they're they're not addicted or they're not striving for the truth they're they're addicted to just hey getting clicks and and selling a story and if you can say something's racist enough times it kind of just becomes true for the general population people don't spend as much time as you and me actually like digging into the truth because what average person has that much time in their day it takes you an entire day to figure out the truth nowadays you know what i mean so it's um yeah it, it's it's it, I, that would actually be a, another example of what i was just talking about like the the supply for the, the the supply for uh racism doesn't meet the demand that the mob is asking for nowadays
Yeah, now that's a great answer. And just keeping on this, these weird uh, labels of conservative and left wing and right wing, etc. These, these are current war ideologically and legally, I suppose, and culturally waging over the over gender and biological sex. It's uh, it's playing out in my home country, large scale, to the point now where you know uh, pretenders for the top job in parliament are, are asked the question, "What is a woman?" It's become very uh very um important that people can answer that in the media and i do a lot of work on the ground interviewing people on this going to a female-led protest you know in, in england in scotland places like that and overwhelmingly uh, they are sort of left-leaning socialist women who are pushing back to this in the uk however in the states the pushback yes. is mostly considered a, a sort of conservative pushback you have people like matthew knowles is one of them uh, Michael Knowles, should I Michael say? Michael Knowles, yeah, yeah. Uh, ben Shapiro, people like that seem to be the, the people that are pushing back more. So, what? What's? I mean, does this is this going to hurt the cause of pushing back against gender ideology in the USA? The fact that it's considered a right wing interest or pet project. Well, yeah, it's it's um <laughs> such a good question. The the um there's a couple sections to the debate. And that has to do around that there is radical gender theory, which is more of, in the United States at least, uh, more of a a left-wing ideology that's being more so pushed as fact. So you're getting conservatives that are pushing back on this, uh, trying to undo it because they're, you know, nobody, you know, in the the States, nobody cares if adults believe what they want to believe. That's great. You do your thing. I'm not out here getting pissed off at flat earth theory people. You're not going to find that right you're just not right but but um you would find that i would be pushing back if they were implementing it first through third grade i would be saying the same thing i'm saying now which is what on earth is wrong with you people and you know children don't need to be exposed to these ideologies that are incredibly at least in our country uh but incredibly incredibly toxic and um and i'll i can touch on that in in, in a sec but um, it, it, it might shut some people down that it is conservatives pushing back. But when it comes to the children debate, I will say when it comes to the children debate, there are a lot of actual feminists that are pushing back. And I would hardly argue that they're right wing. Right. There are feminists that are pushing back on how children cannot consent to puberty blockers, you know, in the United States. And I think that's I think that's actually global, too. And there's a lot of people that it's not a right-wing issue. It's incredibly bipartisan, and it should be bipartisan. That is not a conservative issue at all. Not at all. However, I will say with the ideology, let's say on college campuses and stuff, largely that would be conservatives trying to win that back. I mean, the left dominates every single institution in the United States. So you have media, you have college campuses, you have all the major corporations. They all back radical gender theory. And really the main fight right now is that, that at least I'm focused on, I would say, but a, a major fight would be preventing that from uh, getting into children's lives. You know, children are incredibly impressionable. You tell them one thing and that will be the truth. So, um, and, and unfortunately, we also have a massive, I mean, massive mental health crisis as well. And you'll see that a lot of these kids that are getting involved in, in trying to, you know, that are that are taking hormone blockers and are taking cross-sex hormones and are pursuing double mastectomy surgeries and all that stuff, you know, children under the age of 18, um, the studies are showing, and there's actually a, a 
decent amount of European studies because most of the good ones are, are long-term ones have, have been over in Europe. And it shows that a majority of these kids are, they, they, they have other issues. They have, they're, they're, you know, they have, uh, they're bipolar. They're, uh, they have all sorts of uh, comorbidities, all sorts of issues, depression, yeah. whatever it may be. Autism, autism highly correlates as well, doesn't it? That's, that's exactly right. And so what we're doing, which is the craziest thing is, is, you know, we're seeing these children that have a lot of issues and the answer is chemical castration. That, yeah. that, that seems hardly like it'll solve the problem. And, and the truth is it doesn't. And so when it comes to like what the truth is, this isn't a conservative issue. And I am, I have been very pleased to see that there are a decent amount of left-wing people that are openly opposed to this being pushed on children. Um, as for the ideology though, making its way into schools, that's largely conservative. And we're trying to make it not so. A uh, big culture break was what is woman documentary from Matt Walsh over at Daily Wire. That reached people that weren't conservative. And really, that's the goal. You know, people can believe in their ideologies, and that's great. But teaching them as fact to youth is unacceptable. And that goes for both right and left wing. Yeah, it reminds me of, I call it gender creationism now, because it's very much a similar sort of emphasis from what we saw, like Christian creationism being attempted to be pushed in schools mm -hmm. not so long ago in the States. But I don't know if you saw recently, I'm guessing you would have. I, I wrote um, a piece on this in Spikes magazine in the UK about Scientific American pushing out um, an opinion piece last week claiming that human sex isn't binary. Um, which is just a gulf of pseudoscience and special pleading. It's some of the worst writing and reasoning I've, I've ever seen. But there's this weird mentality in the institutions that if they just tell a lie or pretend something is true that it's not, they'll somehow magically be able to erase bigotry, discrimination, things like that. And my viewpoint is you don't have to lie about scientific reality to ensure equal rights for transgender people, mm -hmm. which I agree transgender people should have all the rights I demand for myself. So what explains something like Scientific American producing uh, an article that's fundamentally false on a basic fact of human biology? Yeah, it, well, I, I, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. I, I'm not even familiar with that uh, recently being released, but um, when it, when it came, I do a lot of editing. So I spend like half my days editing and half my days trying to catch up in the news. So stuff gets past me. But um, it will, it, what's, what's really interesting is a lot of these colleges, um, they will cancel programs as well that are studying completely reasonable things, trying to maybe combat some narratives that are being pushed. So uh, you mentioned the pseudoscience and everything. A lot of that stuff's like totally protected by the media. Nobody's asking questions about any of this stuff. And um, that, that can get you in some, some real trouble. I mean, we would call that wokeism, right? It's that it's, it's instead of like actually focusing on the science, You've, you, you're woke enough to actually interfere with studies, research, whatever it may be that could actually lead to some good, you know? So it kind of turns into this religious ideology um, that people just can't question. Okay, well, maybe we've just got a bit of time for you to tell me about your work with Peter Bogosian. Peter's a, a pal of mine. I'm hoping to see him when he, he comes over to the UK sometime this month or early next month. What, what have you two been cooking up? Well, okay. So Peter, I, I just met him actually in, uh, in Portland. Uh, I was just there. I was there with Billboard Chris as well. He's been traveling North yes. America. Um, he mainly focuses on, um, you know, how children can't consent to puberty blockers. And so that was the topic that we talked about. And Peter joined the video and Peter has a, you know, he, he does uh, a lot more of the epistemology. And so um, he joined us for just 
casual conversations at Portland State University, the heart of, you know, radical gender theory, basically. And um, he was he was really, really excellent. I met him for the first time. He's he's a straightforward guy. And I, I, I think his um, his whole process to street conversations and getting people to really dig deep into what they believe, why they believe it is, um, I mean, I don't know, I'd probably argue that he's better on the street than I am. He's remarkable. And obviously, he's a he's a very famous philosopher in the area. So that was a huge pleasure. Um, it was kind of funny bringing him along doing my style videos instead of his style. So, um, but he, he was really great. He was largely focused when we were talking because we went to Portland State University and he was largely focused on kind of this insane pushback on just us having any conversations. And like I mentioned, you know, we don't go there like bullying people. We don't go there being mean to people, rude to people. And I can't think of two guys that are more open to just very polite conversations than Peter and Chris. And so it was such a pleasure working with both of them. And, uh, you know, Chris was largely focused on, uh, sorry, Peter was largely focused during our, our collaboration video on just the, the insane pushback of these conversations. We had students assaulting us. We had students uh, that were actually brave enough to be even engaging in conversation with us. And I say brave just because they're surrounded by this mob of students at this college that don't want free speech. You know, these, these aren't liberals, by the way. Like these, these, these are the opposite of liberals. They are not liberals. But they, they are utterly convinced that they are liberals. That's the strange thing, isn't it? So it's, that's so true. They, they are incredibly convinced. They believe that they are just incredibly reasonable liberals, but they're more authoritarians. They're, yeah. you know, they do not want speech. They don't want to tap on on the campus. They will uh, bring speakers and destroy the conversation so you can't hear. They'll put it in your ear so your ear's ringing for the next few days. They will physically assault you. Billboard Chris had his phone taken by an activist and it was thrown 20 feet. And so Chris was largely, back to that, he was largely focused on on that pushback with the students that were willing to have conversations with us. And I'll be releasing this footage. We're doing a multi-part episode on my YouTube channel, just highlight highlighting all this. I'm taking my time with it though, because you know we want to make sure we, we really get the message across and and uh, are able to highlight Chris's work, Peter's work, and and uh, and all of that. So it was a great experience though. First time uh, hanging out with him. And he's, uh, he, if you see him on camera, he's the same way in person. Just he's always looking for the truth, always asking really, really deep, good questions. And he's quick as well. So, yeah, yeah he was I, I love pleasure. Pete. Yeah, smart, very smart cookie for sure. I'm glad, <laughs> to, glad to have him right. have him doing the work that he's doing. I remember speaking to him back in the day when I think he wrote the, uh, the Atheist Guide Handbook, which is really, really fascinating. It's been wonderful to see him go on doing, I mean, them gender studies hoax is that he's been involved in a hilarious and beautifully important at the same time. It's a, it's a wonderful mix of everything I love, you know, attacking bad ideology and humor uh, as, as well, for sure. Well, so, that's how you reach people, right? Exactly. It's very powerful. If you can make a good point, that's great. If you can wrap it up in, in a way that makes people laugh, that's, that's the atomic bomb in the battle of ideas, isn't it? For sure. That is absolutely right. James, that's where can people find your YouTube channel then? You guys, uh, at James Klug, K-L-U-G on YouTube. Check it out if you like um, if you like street videos, if you like fun reaction videos, commentary, all that stuff. At James Klug on YouTube. That's K-L-U-G. And uh, you're on the Twitters, I, I imagine, as well? Right. Uh, Twitter handle is at Real James Klug. 
And then Facebook's that as well. And then Instagram is at James Klug. I am working on, you know, getting them all the same, but it's a process. <laughs> and where, where are you on, on Twitter in terms of the ability to have a coherent, valuable exchange with people? It feels very tribal, doesn't it? It feels like uh, people just want to scream at each other. On I, I, I hate Twitter. I, um, <laughs> I, I, I really prefer having just like, you know, at least somewhat polite conversations where we can actually talk. I feel as though Twitter makes me a worse person. Uh, and I'm not even joking when I say that. Like it, 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 it encourages it. And okay, hold on. I do love Twitter at the same time. So let, let me, let me clarify that as well. Um, there's aspects of it. I, I adore, but um, Twitter really encourages a quick, you know, five words, make it controversial, whatever it may be. And so you get a lot of people just looking to like own the others and that's great. It's fun. And I, and you know, Twitter is fun. It's a great time. But I, I don't spend too much time on Twitter. YouTube's more of my platform. I like to highlight discussions. I like to do all that. It just gives me a little bit more time. And uh, um, but but I will I will say Twitter 2.0 with Elon Musk is uh, ten times better. We're actually able to have conversations now if you want to. And there's no yeah. you know there's there's almost no better platform for connecting you know building relationships than Twitter. So there's there's huge positives to Twitter. It is a good time, but it does encourage. And you'll see people, as soon as they get on Twitter, you'll see them get progressively more spicy, more spicy, more spicy with the rhetoric because people see what works on, on platforms, right? They, they see yeah. what works. And so as soon as something gets a little bit more likes, they'll do more of that. And it tends to be more inflammatory, quick, you know, hot takes. And those are fun. But you got to balance that out with conversations like this and, and all that. That's, that's agree, the healthy balance. Well, James, this has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you very much for speaking to me. And I'll definitely be checking out uh, those videos when they when they drop on your YouTube channel for sure. It sounds, sounds right up my street. So thank you very much. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. And congrats again on the 100th episode. Thanks, man. It's been a pleasure.